Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Future Projection Podcast. This is episode 16. I'm Carlos Calazzo, as always, joined by Ben Badler. Ben, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Carlos. How's everything going with you? It is good. It is good. We've been chatting about some prospects, as we typically do, with a focus on minor leagues. Uh, we recently had some conversations at Baseball America about our next Top 100 update. And so today, we wanted to focus on the minor leagues uh, our top 100 list that's going to be coming out shortly after you guys are listening to this podcast. And for that conversation, we have brought on Josh Norris, a uh, recurring guest on the podcast. Josh, how's it going, man? Going all right. How about y'all? We are doing great, man. Glad to have you here. Uh, always fun to uh, add another BA staffer into the conversation, into the mix. Uh, last week, we focused a lot on amateur players. Um, and this week, I feel like it only makes sense to talk about the minor leagues. The season is Close to wrapping up. Um, again, we, we do have that top 100 update that's coming out. So I guess, Josh, I'll just throw it to you first since you've been squarely focused on minor leagues and just prospects in general. How do you feel like this minor league season has been for prospects? What has your, uh, your feel for the year been after, after COVID? It's been a weird year. I mean, you've got guys making up for lost time. You've got guys maybe starting the year in places they shouldn't have been because the minor leagues were contracted a little bit uh, in the off season. So you had guys who probably would have been better off staying and extended being forced to go up to low A and then quickly proving themselves not ready for low A. So the quality of games were or was iffy to begin the year. Uh, I think it's kind of self-corrected a little bit this year, but it's kind of hit the other end of the spectrum right now where there are teams that are clearly running out of pitching and they're giving up 15 to 20 runs a night, seemingly on a regular basis um, because they are having to pitch position players or guys who are clearly done. So it's been um, a, an interesting year to say the least, but as I will keep saying better than last year. Is that because guys, is that because you think guys are just gassed or, or just on limited innings or, or limited workloads 
given that there obviously was no minor league season last year. Right. It's guys hitting their innings limits and, and, or being gassed. I mean, I can't speak to how gassed or ungassed they are, but there are guys who are you know, hitting their innings limits to that same end. You know, we're you know, getting to the point where we're, I think, three weeks away from instructional league, maybe two weeks away from instructional league based on the schedules I've seen. But there are some teams who are possibly choosing not to at least play games based on the fact that they are running out of pitching. They don't have enough pitching to do games within themselves and just say nothing of COVID kind of reoccurring uh, right now. I mean, I wouldn't say any time is opportune, but it's reoccurring in force at the end of the season. You'll see a fair amount of games every night that are banged because of COVID uh, on both coasts. How, how much do you think the, the shortened draft affects this, this innings problem? Obviously last year we had a five round draft, but there was no minor league season to kind of throw pitchers in and reinforce teams that maybe needed arms. Do you feel like the draft isn't long enough to adequately supply the minor leagues with arms at this point, even with the restructured minor leagues, or do you think it's just, uh, lingering effects of the COVID layoff more than anything? I mean, it's both. Five rounds was obviously short, but it wasn't like five players was only what the team added. They did sign, a lot of teams did sign NDFAs. So they got other guys into their system. And they, you know, still had a pretty good universe of players to pick from, but the innings limits things are real. Like there are guys who are approaching, you know, after going zero last year, you can't really have them go a hundred this year or what have you. So that's just what I've noticed and heard from people is just that there's, they're, they're out of arms. You're seeing, I believe that's the problem that's happening right now in the ACL, the former AZL. You'll see a couple of games every night that are forfeited. I think it's, if I'm correct, that's just because they don't have pitching. It's not canceled. It's just a forfeit. <laughs> Honestly, that, I mean, that makes sense to me. I, I'm kind of surprised we, that that hasn't been a thing for a long time, seeing as these, these games really don't matter, the wins and losses. I mean, maybe fans won't, won't be too happy about that. But if you're prioritizing development, it makes sense to just, if you don't have arms, just end the game. But um, I wanted to talk a little bit about our process for the top 100, maybe take listeners into kind of behind the scenes of how we go about updating that. And also just generally talk about this year's top 100 group because uh yesterday we had what we we sat around for about three maybe four hours kind of talking about changes on the list and we're currently sending that list around through the industry for feedback uh again depending on when you guys are listening to that you might be able to uh check out the list for yourself but it's probably going to go up early next week i would guess um and another thing that i wanted to just throw to you guys is i feel like every year uh, coming from like a draft perspective we always talk about the strengths of a given draft class compared to the average or compared to recent years. And maybe it's just because I'm a little bit more outside of this world than you guys, but I feel like we don't talk as much about the relative strength of any given top 100, uh, either compared to average years or or recent years. And I'm kind of curious how you guys thought about that generally and how this 2021 group of prospects stacks up. Is it a strong group of prospects? Is it a down year? Are there strengths in certain positions, kind of how would you guys think through that for this year specifically? And just how, how do you think about that generally? I think the catching right now, at at least among the best pro- catching prospects in the game, is really strong. Obviously, we're starting with Adley Rushman, but, you know, 
Rushman, you know, certainly a strong candidate to be the number one player. <laughs> we, we talked about that uh, on our last podcast, whether you take Adley or Julio or Julio Rodriguez or Bobby Wood Jr. But um, I would go with Adley at, at the number one spot. But then you have guys like Hebert Ruiz. Uh, lower down, you have Francisco Alvarez, uh, Tyler Soderstrom. When you know when he's been on the field, has has looked absolutely fantastic. I don't know long term if he if he does stay behind the plate, or if it's more of a, a Will Meyer situation where he needs more work on on his defense, but his bat pushes the issue so fast that he ends up at another position, and it seems like his bat is going to play just about anywhere on the field. Uh, Luis Campusano, I know obviously a Rocky introduction to the big leagues but he's still prospect eligible I I think there's a a really strong group of catchers right now who are you know and oh by the way Henry Davis number one overall pick in the draft right so um, I I think there's a really strong group of of catchers who you're probably going to see all ranked among the the top 50 prospects in in baseball when this update comes out I think you're, you, you've offended me a little bit because you didn't mention the guy that I think could wind up being the best of them all, and that's Gabriel Moreno. Oh, I, I thought I mentioned him. Uh, you're right, I did not. Yeah. <laughs> his, his reviews were, yes. you know, like if you stacked 12 megaphones next to one another and then spoke into one, that's how loud the reviews that guy got at the beginning of the year. Unfortunately, when his name didn't, wasn't on the Futures game list, I didn't know he had broken his thumb. I was personally offended. There yeah, I, I distinctly remember you like shouting in our Slack with 12 oh, megaphones about him of, not being on the list. There was a lot of rage in that <laughs> Slack when he didn't, when it wasn't on the Futures game rosters. And then someone was like, well, he's, he's got a broken thumb. Well, all right, fine. But otherwise, this would have been a, a great oversight. Um, and we didn't talk about uh, Shay Langoliers either, who's mm-hmm. like a, a, a mother. Um, yeah, I mean Diego Cartaya, another guy. Joey Bart is, you know, still still prospects eligible. I, I think it's the, the 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 amount of catching that's in that I think is, is going to end up in this top fifty group is, is is way above what what it normally would be. I was about to say, is there a group of catchers, or is there a year that had this much catching strength, or just kind of off the top of your heads, or, or do you think this is the best year of catching prospects? I guess clustered in one year that we've had since you guys have been doing this thing? I can't remember a better group. Ben's been here longer than I have, but. Yeah, that's the problem is, yeah, with, with so many groups, I don't remember like specific. <laughs> I mean, like obviously when Matt Wieters was coming up, he was a, a pretty big headline guy and and obviously Joe Maurer, you know, I, I remember and, and Maurer was before I was working at Baseball America, but yeah. You know, I remember the heads of of the classes, and you know, Adley Rushman stacks up pretty well with with those guys. So I don't remember the exact depth of, mm-hmm. of guys, but um, you know, I, I think usually we're, we we tend to be a little bit more conservative with catchers too. I mean, it is a premium position, so there's more value in it, but there's also a lot of wear and tear that that goes on with catchers, and and they're not playing as often as a shortstop or mm-hmm. or, right. or a center fielder. So there's some limitation to to what value they can bring relative to some of the other positions just because of the playing time amount but 
Um, we, we have a whole bunch of catchers <laughs> we really like in this group. Yeah. I mean, we, he just graduated, but Alejandro Kirk, I mean, he's done pretty well this year in a limited sample, had a multi-home run game the other night. Uh, the Blue Jays still believe in him. They've got, they've got some guys there. They just traded the guy uh, to the Diamondbacks game. I think it's like DeRazio, uh, who is kind of a sleeper type in the FCL. So there's, there's a lot of catchers to go around. And to your point, you know, some of these guys will move off catcher. Some of these shortstops will move off shortstop. Um, but right now, the catching crop is super strong. Just in general, for the talent level, do you guys feel like this is a solid year of prospects, below average here, above average? I know it's probably kind of tough to kind of compartmentalize that and, and put it all into kind of one just overall talent bucket and compare it to previous years with the number of names that kind of move on and off a list at any given point. But kind of looking at this group right now, would you say it's a solid group of prospects, below average or above average compared to a typical? I want to start by saying this year started with Wander Franco as the number one prospect. Uh, right now we're arguing over Bobby Witt, Julio Rodriguez, and Abdi Rutschman, and Wander is younger than all of them mm -hmm. and is on a 37-game on-base streak in the big leagues for a team fighting for a pennant. Uh, he was younger than, I believe, everyone on the college national team. He is a sorcerer and <laughs> is basically – everything that he could be. And then we'll, we'll talk about another threesome here that probably uh, will happen here, assuming playing time. Triple-A East, because it is the, just the gigantic super league that the Midwest League uh, used to be. Um, you could have, for our league top 20s, you are probably going to have to choose number one prospect, Wander Franco, number one prospect, Bobby Witt, or number one prospect, Adley Rutschman, because they are two of them are already eligible and Adley will likely be eligible by week's end. So that's an extraordinarily fun uh, discussion at the top of that list, just because it's so huge. And it's going to be complicated because of the way the seasons work this year because of COVID. If you are a manager and you saw Bobby Witt play, you absolutely did not see Wander Franco play. And you did not see Adley Rutschman play and vice versa because they don't play each other. Right now, that league uh, that where the Wander Adley group is, is it only plays each other. It's only five you know, six teams, and then there's a little other pod like in the Northeast and the Midwest where those other ones play. But I say all that to say that it's a really strong group at the top, and we could have, you know, we had a four-hour meeting yesterday on the top 100. We could probably have a 10-hour meeting dissecting those three guys and those three guys alone, and I don't think there's a wrong answer. Yeah, uh, and I think the the right the wrong answer would be to have a ten hour meeting over three players. <laughs> well, just speaking about and just talking about three players, it's not the specific three that you just mentioned, Josh, because Wander is graduated. But Ben and I had a conversation about who we would take of of the top three that we generally consider at the top of this list that you guys have mentioned: Adley, Julio, and Bobby Witt Jr. Um, who would you take? Uh, we've talked about this off the air, but just so you can kind of be on the record here as we talk through these, do you have a preference in how you would line those guys up? Um, obviously, go, last time I was Bobby Witt Jr. and I think Ben was Adley, right? Bobby Witt Jr. I mean, yeah. I, I just cannot fathom what he is doing right mm. now. He didn't play a single game in short season ball or rookie level, whatever the half season league you want to call it, uh, Idaho Falls. He didn't play ever a game at Burlington. He didn't play a game at low A. He didn't play a game at high A. He started this year at double A and mashed. He's 
mashing at AAA. I just can't think of a precedent like that for a guy coming in under these circumstances, skipping. I mean, I know he was at the alternate site last year, but that environment is weird at best. Uh, skipping all those levels and then just absolutely dominating uh, his league at his age. It's just beyond mind boggling to me. Like I remember asking a scout, we, we, have, we have him as sixes across the board uh, for all five of his tools. I said, um, you know, is that accurate? Do you, do you think he's plus in all five categories? And he said, yes. And I'd like to say that I saw him when he wasn't performing. He had the little hiccup at the beginning of the year where he was adjusting to, you know, non-spring training baseball. I was going to say, when was that? <laughs> Very beginning of the year. It was probably a two-day sample size. It was like a two-series sample where he was just okay. And he's like, I still saw all five-plus tools. And like, that's really, that's as loud as any number I can, you know, look up. I love hearing that because, I mean, this whole time you've been talking, Josh, I've just been smiling over here as the resident Bobby Witt Jr., like the captain of the fan club. But I, I do remember it, just watching him in high school during the summer, he, he did not have the best offensive summer that that scouts kind of wanted to see. I think there was a little bit of that prospect fatigue with Witt. There's more swing and miss. But even when he wasn't the best hitter on the field, there was always something else that he was doing whether that was defensively at shortstop, making a high IQ play with his arm, uh, being aggressive on the bases. It, it always seemed like he was impacting the game, whether or not he had just gotten a hit or just got on base in his last AB. And, and that's par partially what's always stood out to me about Bobby Wood Jr. And, and just to kind of continue talking about him because I love him so much, I, I feel like we don't talk about his defense at shortstop enough because all of his other tools are so loud and what he's doing with the bat is so impressive. But where do you think a guy like him stacks up with the better defensive shortstops on a top 100 list or, or even the better defensive shortstops in baseball? Because I, I still think he's probably one of the more impressive defenders at the position that I've seen at the amateur level. And, and I haven't heard anything to kind of move me off that, that take in pro ball at this point, although you guys have talked to more people since he's been in pro ball. I just, I'll sum it up this way. I don't think there's a hole in his game. I, I don't think there's a weakness at all in his game right now. I, I don't know what to do with a prospect like him because I didn't, ex I mean, I'll give you another anecdote. When I was coming back with a former BA editor, John Manuel, at some point from somewhere, we were, this was right after Wit, I believe, was drafted. I think John was with, either way, we ran into uh, a Royals official on the plane back. And I said, oh, we said, oh, we're, we're excited to see Bobby Witt, you know, get to Burlington this year. And he's like, eh, I don't think he's going to get to Burlington this year. He's probably not ready for that level. And to go from that to not ready for Burlington, which is, you know, the Appy League, which is a mishmash of hard-throwing Latin guys and two old college guys and the occasional stud, uh, to say that the number two overall pick in the draft wasn't ready for that level, Oh, that seems like a mildly red flag to go from that to, oh my goodness, he might be like Megatron. Uh, I, I don't know what he did in the off season, but it worked. Hmm. And I'll take another pause here to just give unending plaudits to the Royals hitting development program. MJ Melendez 
and Nick Prado were two of the worst hitters in the game, period, mm-hmm. at, in 2019 at High A Wilmington. They are two of the best hitters in the game, period, in the minor leagues this year. And MJ Melendez may win a home run title. Nick Prado is one of the best first base prospects in the country. And it, both of them have zoomed from, oh my goodness, they whiffed so hard on that pick to top 100. Whatever those guys did in PD at the uh, alternate site and instructional league, just copy it, you know, you know and, and seal it for all eternity because that really worked. Just Yeah, those are two of the more um, shocking turnarounds in, in the minor leagues to me to go from how brutally they struggled before to how good they have you know not just performed but the reviews from from scouts on them too this year has, has been remarkable absolutely it just I, I couldn't believe it i mean that northwest arkansas team was just like you know the 27 yankees <laughs> yeah. wit and melendez and uh prado um i think there's some other guys on that team michael massey's on that team hmm. Uh, Clay Dungan's gotten some love and there's that was as good a team as we've seen in the minor leagues this year uh, outside of maybe Durham which is somehow seems like they're always good (laughs) somehow always good there are certain teams in the minor leagues are somehow always bad yeah being a Rays affiliate I guess is a good first step oh they've got like the Rays affiliate I think there's like three Rays affiliates that have won 70 games this year or are on track to yeah ridiculous fairly unsurprising we talked about the strengths of this group. We talked about some of the players at the top. Are there any demographic or positional weaknesses uh, in the current crop of top prospects in the game that you guys feel is particularly glaring or no? Pitchers have been as volatile as ever this year. seems like every time one of them pops up, they, you know, they crawl back under like whack-a-mole. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult trying to find a top uh, a top pitching prospect who will stay healthy and perform at the same time, unless your name is Grayson Rodriguez or Cade Cavalli, and we will knock wood right now for them so they <laughs> do not befall any injuries or underperformance in the last two weeks of the season. So that's yeah, good. that it definitely it, it definitely does seem to be just a consistent concern with arms, and and we constantly see this happen over and over again that these guys get hurt. Uh, they're they're um paths their player development paths are not linear by any means we see guys remake themselves entirely and and come back vastly different in in both good and bad ways um but do you guys think this pitching group is is lesser than previous years are we just slowly kind of correcting for pitching prospect risk in general um since i guess compared to maybe like 10 years ago i i think the pitching prospects are are better than ever it's certainly stuff wise <laughs> but yeah i think i i think ho- hopefully we're just recognizing more of the risks inherent in all all pitchers i mean even like mckenzie gore is a good example he and he's not even it's not even a, it hasn't even been injuries with him <laughs> it's just sometimes guys just things just fall apart for them quickly and I, and i think it's important for us to be quick in responding to those changes that we're seeing in a picture either bad or or good like on the other end uh, uh matt brash 
for example, where the the stuff that he's been throwing this year has been uh, electric. I, I know there's some 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 reliever risk with him, obviously, but it's I, I just I think there's so much depth of arms of guys who are not on the top 100 or or won't be on this top 100 update and probably like weren't even discussed to be in it, but who's just their pure stuff would absolutely put them on a top 100 five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. No, go ahead, Josh. You had some end of that. You know, you, you mentioned brash look the same shout out I gave to the Royals hitting development, the Mariners pitching development, my gracious, uh, George Kirby has gone from pretty good stuff, exceptional to command to frontline stuff with exceptional command. I mean, he's, he stands right there with uh, Cade Cavalli and Grayson Rodriguez as the best three, three of the best, at least right-handers in the minor leagues. And I think just the same way you have the argument about Witt and Adley and uh, oh, yeah. at the top, you could have an argument about Rodriguez, Cavalli, and Kirby for the number one pitching prospect in the game, at least among right-handers. Matthew Liberatore and his newfound fastball velocities also says hello. Um, But it's not just them. I mean, Hancock has had an up-and-down year, but he's certainly got the pedigree. But Levi Stout has been excellent this year. He's got one of the most dastardly change-ups in that league, if not the minors. Matt Brash's slider is from another planet. and he's, you know, throwing mid to uppers as well. Uh, they've got, you know, plenty of other guys coming too. So their their system has taken a lot of jumps forward as well. And that that Northwest or that regular Arkansas rotation, geez. And the, the Everett team to begin the year was a super team uh, with with all those pitchers I just mentioned, plus Julio Rodriguez, plus Carter Bins, plus Austin Shenton, who you know, just hits, hits, and then hits some more. That team was a, a destructicon, I guess, to put it in technical terms, to begin <laughs> the year. And there's a reason they're our number one farm system right now. Just they've got guys on guys on guys on guys. So special shout out to Mariners pitching development. Yeah, and Ben, I'm glad you brought up McKenzie Gore because I, I also wanted to talk about players who are polarizing prospects in general, or or the players that are difficult for us to place. And I feel like Gore was maybe the the peak example of this, of a player who we have struggled internally to just find out where we want to place him. How do you, how do we react to the new information that we have on him without totally discounting uh, his pedigree, what he's shown previously when he is kind of going at hundred percent and has everything together. We can talk more about Gore and, and the challenges of, of placing that within this this broader landscape of prospects, but I feel like there are a number of players who are just challenging in one way or another to rank, whether that's because of small sample sizes or because of injuries or because there's just different opinions on valuing uh, upside versus risk and proximity. Um, I guess I'll just throw it to you guys. Are there any players that you specifically wanted to touch on that were difficult and how we kind of talk through those conversations to feel as confident, I guess, as we can possibly feel about a process like this. Ben, you want to take it? Uh, I mean, Mackenzie Gore, to me, 
to me, he like I, I guess it's it's tough because so, some of these guys I, I don't see them as polarizing because I think yeah I just <laughs> I, I know I know in the what, sense that the staff is very split <laughs> true right so that that was my point to me so so Mackenzie Gore is somebody where you know if, if you ask me in 2019 after the season about Mackenzie Gore I I loved Mackenzie Gore he was I thought one of the best pitching prospects in in the game at that point uh maybe you know I don't remember our exact list in 2019 maybe the best left-handed pitching prospect in in baseball at that time we I know we had him as a, a top 10 prospect in in the game he had gotten a double a as a 20 year old uh you know big fastball from the left side good breaking ball was throwing strikes missing a lot of bats uh all all the reviews we had on him were were excellent and i just see a player now who we've had two years of not very good reports on on him last year it was obviously difficult because he was at the alternate training site and, and other teams were not seeing him. It was more of an enclosed environment, but still we were getting word. Uh, he was having some trouble with his delivery. It wasn't looking quite right. Uh, this year it's, it's been more of the same, more, more struggles when, when he has been on the fields uh, issues with his, with his breaking stuff, with his control his his commands. Uh, the results have not been good, I guess, other than maybe him getting back, back down to the complex league in Arizona, but I don't think that means too much against the, you know, teenage hitters he's, he's facing there. So I just see a guy who's to, to me, he's just not a top 100 prospect anymore, which is not saying Mackenzie Gore sucks. That's not it at all. It just means, look, there's guys who are, in the back of our, our top 100 who are just, just better pitching prospects than him right now. You know, I know we're still working through the list right now, but whether, you know, Jackson Job or Daniel Espino or, you know, a Blake Walston, these, these kind of guys, Kyle Harrison, I, I, I'd have a hard time taking Mackenzie Gore over these guys or, or even some of these other guys who, who are not going to be on our top 100, who, who have really good stuff. Uh, maybe aren't as as famous yet as Mackenzie Gore, but better stuff, better results. I mean, look at at one point I thought Forrest Whitley was was the best pitching prospect in baseball, but at a certain point when you know you don't want to overreact to a guy having a bad month or, or a bad couple of months or something like that. But uh, at this point, I think really it, it's been two years since we've had really good reports to justify Mackenzie Gore being one of the best pitching prospects in baseball. And Hey, you know, look, if, if he turns things around, I'd have no problem, obviously putting him, uh, you know, moving him back up the rankings. But for me, I, I just don't see him being one of the 100 best prospects in, in baseball right now. Josh, do you want to counter that or add to that? I'm certainly not going to counter it. Uh, <laughs> I agree with everything Ben said there. Like I, Forrest Whitley is a great example. You know, before he got cut on, he lost the strike zone completely. And when he didn't lose the strike zone completely, he was getting hit hard and often. And we dinged him for it. And then we kept dinging him for it. And now he's out of the hundred and doesn't come up in our meetings at all. 
I saw probably in person, probably the two best starts of Forrest Whitley's life. He looked everything like ace could possibly be. And then it all fell apart. And you can't just live on what his reputation used to be. Like he's, Mackenzie Gore hasn't been Mackenzie Gore brand name in two years. I mean, if you told me that the Padres last year were gonna bring up a left-hander to help them down the stretch and possibly in the playoffs, and it wasn't Mackenzie Gore, I'd have been very surprised. No, no diss to Ryan Weathers, but here he is. And Mackenzie Gore, his numbers haven't been terrible, but they weren't good. And they, the, the Padres obviously saw enough problems to send him, like Ben said, back to Arizona to retool his delivery and get his confidence back and then throw him out there for a couple outings against uh, the, the ACL and then moved him up the other day to high A Fort Wayne where he was okay again. But just being okay against lesser competition does not a top 100 prospect make. Like we had this same discussion with Braylon Marquez. Like last year, Marquez got to the big leagues for like an inning or whatever in the weird year that was. And this year, unfortunately, he's had issues with COVID and a shoulder uh, injury. He hasn't thrown a pitch all year. Might he get back in the fall league? Yeah. But right now, he's done absolutely nothing. And there's two uh, mitigating factors there. One, we really don't know the long-term effects of. And the other, which is just the shoulder injury, which is really concerning for a pitcher. And let's not forget, there was a significant amount of reliever risk with Braylon Marquez to begin with. So we had that. I feel like we spent a lot of time talking about both Braylon Marquez and Mackenzie Gore yesterday toward the back of our 100. Um, I think those are pretty polarizing guys and I would fall on the side of not putting those guys in because there are guys who have performed this year. Now let's stress, we don't just want to st- uh, scout the stat line, but yeah, what's keeping a guy like Joe Ryan from being in, you know, big leaguer, uh, performed like hell at the upper levels. Uh, if you like the Olympic silver medalists, he's there too. Um, Ryan Nelson has had a great year for the Diamondbacks, as has Dre Jameson, albeit with a little injury in between. Spencer Strider's had a great year for the Diamondbacks. Why, why are these guys not above Mackenzie Gore and Braylon Marquez at this point? I'm in Bax Love Fest over here. <laughs> in, the proof is in the pudding. <laughs> these guys have performed. They've had a, they've had a really good year uh, pitching. If you want to or keep did you going say with Strider for the, for the Braves, I think. I did. I did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Diamondbacks. But, um, uh, but yeah. No. And you want to keep going with the Diamondbacks Love Fest for a second? Luis Freeze has had a really good year. I don't know if he's top 100, but they've had a really good year at the upper levels of the farm, especially with arms. And I don't, if you ask me why guys like Nelson and Jameson aren't in the top 100, I don't know if I can give you a good answer right now. Not a good year with shoulders, though. Yeah, no. that, that was another thing that came up repeatedly throughout our conversations. Just so many of these guys have shoulder injuries and not even just pitchers. There are a number of hitters that have dealt with shoulder issues. I think both Corbin Carroll and Jordan Lawler are two of the more uh, prominent position prospects who are dealing with shoulder issues, um, which is, seems a bit odd that we've had this many. Um, but one of the other yeah, players that I don't necessarily know if this player is polarizing per se, because I do think there was more of an agreement among the staff of where he needed a place. But I feel like talking about Austin Martin 
is worth getting into here, not only because I was so high on him and he, he doesn't seem to be trending in the right direction at the moment, but I also think it's interesting to talk about just, and I, and I think part of the Mackenzie Gore conversation touched on this, but just how quickly you come off of players um, and, and almost disc, not discount, but, but move away from pre-draft reports and what we heard about these players as amateurs. Obviously, Austin Martin was our number two draft prospect behind Spencer Torkelson in his draft class. Uh, I repeatedly talked about how I liked him as much or more than Torkelson. Um, and it definitely seems like he's not trending in that direction. Um, he's going to be lower on our next update than he was on our preseason list, where I think he was a top 20 prospect. And he's so tricky for me too, just because I have this huge bedrock of information of him when he was very good and it was nothing but positive reports uh, he still has a lot of attributes that I think are really impressive with his on-base skill, uh, his bat-to-ball ability, but he hasn't shown a lot of power. He's already been traded after being um, the first overall pick for a team, picking number five. Um, and I feel like there are just a lot of questions with him. We haven't, And I haven't even talked about just defensive or profile or throwing questions as well. So how do you guys see Austin Martin at this point? And do you think he's a player who kind of fits in this conversation of polarizing or is he just a guy who uh, I personally was high on and is now not trending in the right direction? Ben, I'll throw it to you first. I I think he's an interesting one too, because he he's gone straight to double a. So he didn't play anywhere in the lower minors after getting drafted last year out of Vanderbilt and having barely played (laughs) last year. So the caveat, I mean, there's caveats with our pre-draft reports from 2020, like we've talked about with Nick York, which is that it's it's just not the same amount of information going into the draft that there normally would be. I mean, think about Adrian Del Castillo, the catcher from University of Miami, yeah. who if, if COVID had happened in, in 2021 – instead of starting in, in 2020, Adrian, would Adrian Del Castillo probably have been a first-round pick? So I, I think almost certainly, and, and maybe been a top-15 pick. I mean, we're talking about you – know, people were talking about him as, as I mean, one of en- the – Entering the year, he was pretty widely seen as the best pure hitter in the college class, which is kind of like Austin Martin's reputation at the same time. Not yeah. SEC, but it's a very strong track record in the ACC in addition and- to his high school pedigree. And then he played a full season this year and it was like, well, I don't know how much impact there is in, in the bat and kind of like Austin Martin, I guess you could say, and I, I had a very, very different position questions, obviously with Austin Martin, but position questions are, are pretty significant with Adrian Del Castillo as well. And he ended up going in the second round, like around the 60th or so overall pick. Um, so it's, you know, I, I think there's a lot, you know, who knows what would have happened had, had the 2020 season college season actually happened with, with Austin Martin. I, again, I, I still think Austin Martin is, is a very good prospect and, and somebody who belongs in the top 100. And, and I want to keep in mind how, how aggressive an assignment it is for the blue Jays to send him to double a right away, rather than saying, all right, you can go to go to high a or, or, frankly, even low, I don't, I don't think would have been outrageous, but 
Um, it's and and it's not like Austin Martin has, you know, fallen fell on his face or, or anything like that. I think I had a four twenty four on base before yeah. before the trade. Uh, combination of a lot of singles, walks, uh, hit by pitches, but not He's a lot. He's got a, of... a fairly unique overall line uh, with two teams in Double A through eighty three games. He's hitting two seventy two, four thirteen, three eighty nine with uh, five homers. 52 walks, 79 strikeouts. Yeah, good athlete. So the the optimistic view is, yeah, he's he's athletic, can, you know, position still to be determined, probably not shortstop, probably somewhere else, center field, maybe ends up being the best fit for him. He, he can run pretty well, obviously, out there. So, uh, and, and the hope is that he does grow into more power as, as he matures as a hitter and, and gets stronger and gets into his, his physical prime. But I, I think we all probably were expecting to see a little bit more from him uh, this year, especially as far as just being able to drive the ball to a little bit more impact than he has. Yeah. Austin Martin is vexing. The reviews on him to begin the year were poor. Um, there were a lot of questions about this guy was drafted where like his swing looked wonky to guys, no defensive position issues with throwing. But as Ben says, you know, he, uh, he's got a huge on base percentage, uh, 424 there. And he's like 390 something at Wichita. Now he's qualified in two double a leagues. So that'll be interesting to see where he ranks in the Texas league and the, uh, Eastern League, if he ranks in either or both on our league top 20s. But it is also telling that he was available in trade that quickly. Um, but I mean, some of it too is that, I mean, the Blue Jays have, well, they have uh, Bo Bichette at shortstop, but then they have, and some of these guys won't stick at the position, but you know, and, and probably won't, but they did trade from a huge position of strength in their. They've their got, order. yeah, Jordan Groshans and, mm-hmm. and Orelvis Martinez. And those guys probably are, I mean, both third basemen, but um, I, I, I wasn't surprised that he, you know, he would be available in, in a trade. I think I would be a little bit surprised just because they did just spend their first pick on him in a draft, but I, I do get where you're, where you're coming from. Yeah. I mean, just, you, you gave him three months, four months, I guess three months because only the season started in May to really get his feet under him and you got the verdict in that amount of time that you're comfortable dealing with him or dealing dealing. Yeah, him. after yeah. just signing him for $7 million, but... Granted, it was for Jose Barrios, who's decent at pitching. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of weird, I don't want to say red, but like orange flags around him. <laughs> <laughs> orange is closer to red than... Oh, you're saying it's not a red flag. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. It's between red gotcha, and gotcha. gotcha. Yeah, <laughs> took, took me a second there. <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, the, say that he's he's a volatile prospect. Yeah, you do have to consider the variable that, yeah, he was a double A to begin his year. Uh, I kind of disagree with Ben that if, if, if he had started at low A, I would have been, oh, that would have been a very red flag. I think if you're taking the college guy from Vanderbilt of all places and putting him at low A, especially in the year, like we talked about low A with this weird mash of dudes who probably should have been an extended. Uh, that would have been a giant red flag to me, but I wouldn't have been out of the question. You also have to consider by the way, that in this particular year and given Canada's border restrictions, uh, you had 
New Hampshire was the only place in their system that was playing in its actual home park without confusing restrictions. Like Dunedin started the year having to wander around because the Blue Jays were playing there. And then Buffalo, you know, uh, was going to be the home for uh, the major league teams. They were getting ready for that. And then Vancouver has not played a, uh, a home game in Vancouver all year because of the border restrictions. So they played all year as the away team in Hillsboro, Oregon. So you give him some level of stability uh, as far as just environments to start the year by putting him at New Hampshire. So that might have figured into the assignment somewhat too. That's all a long-winded way of saying it's giant shrug emoji for Austin Martin this year. There's some good signs and there's some bad signs. But you kind of touched on a topic that I feel like we had a lot of questions about entering the year and we're kind of wondering about, and that's just how, how we view the various levels of the minor leagues at this point. Do you feel like with almost a full season with the restructuring, we have a good idea about how to look at each level in terms of talent under the new system? Or do you feel like we still need more time to kind of figure out how to view these levels? Because I was curious to see if, if just the talent level at like a low A or high A would just be lesser than previous years or how that would work. Do you feel like we have a good feel for that or no? No, there's, there's also some other complicating factors considering we're testing all sorts of different rules. And we've talked about it ad nauseum yeah. in our stack that in, low a, in certain levels of low A, you have pickoff rules, which is why dudes are stealing bases like crazy. Um, in high A, you have different rules for, for pickoffs and stuff like that. And there's the stolen bases are up there in the low A Southeast. You had um, the auto strike zone, which has been adjusted in the middle of the year because the first half of the year or so, it was nuts. Um, what was the issue? That seems uh, to make sense. I feel like you should go into it understanding that you're probably going to have to tweak it until you get a zone that you actually want and that both pitchers and hitters feel comfortable with, right? That seems like the whole point right. of it instituting was, it. Was so tight that it was leading to an insane amount of walks. Um, and especially because, you know, a human ump in a game where it's, you know, a bit of a blowout, you might give them a little more room. But hey, this is professional baseball. The zone should not change just because one team can't throw strikes, Josh. Here's the thing about that. It's, it's so funny to hear. I feel like I've never run into a baseball person who wants the auto zone, and I've never run into a fan who doesn't. Like everyone I talk to about it who actually works in baseball is like, no, nah, let's just leave the umps the way they are. And Interesting. All the fans are like, Robo umps now, no more Angel Hernandez, <laughs> no more Joe West. It's like, I feel like a lot of that too is because of the rise in there are a lot of these accounts that umpire post order, yeah the umpire, umpire report order. cards yeah like every game where you can see like this ump was only 95 percent effect every time i see them on i'm honestly impressed by by how good the umpires are and it seems like the takeaway from twitter is that these guys all suck so i'm know, sure that it, adds uh, to it I, it's like oh he got 98 percent correct fire him Point <laughs> one run towards the other team in this game <laughs> i get it i mean you, you you'd rather have you know, Robo Ump than Eric Gregg in '97, but they're they're I think partially the rise of social media and instantaneous things like that have made umps look a lot worse than they do. Like I I doubt. I mean, slow mo doesn't help them either. No, like I, if you if you saw like a guy like uh, uh, Bill Clem or whatever back in the day, like I'm sure he was 
pretty bad too, but you didn't have Twitter or whatever. That's right. I dropped an umpire hall of famer on. Yeah, you. Josh, I was about to say, I have no idea who that person is, but go, go on. <laughs> hey, you're not on the Jocko Conlon uh, either. <laughs> but anyway, I'm sure those guys were just as bad or worse than, you know, your, your Marty, your, your Ted Barrett's these days, but there was no way to check it in, in, in real time. So I think it's not that they've gotten worse. It's just that we see them more often. If yeah, that absolutely. Sense. Absolutely. But back to the low A league, it led to a weirdly tighter strike zone. And also now they've moved it. They don't measure it at the front of the plate anymore. They measure it in the middle, which is for the best because you get some, some really weird strike calls if you're measuring at the front of home plate uh, instead of the back. And you've seen it kind of normalized. From breaking balls that just yep. break right at the start of the plate and then maybe even almost yep. hit the dirt. Oh <laughs> well, yeah. Like I, I remember we've seen them in the fall league that you know Jacob Hayward got ejected arguing with a robo ump. Um, and I remember seeing one on Vidal Bruhan where the catcher had to go into like the five hole block kind of scenario. And it was a called strike. And it was like, what? <laughs> and the ump can't really do anything about it. the only time the ump can overrule it. If, it, if it's like a ball that like bounces through the strike zone and isn't a is it a strike but the point is uh that led to some weirdly offensive atmospheres uh to begin the year and i think like tampa scored like 76 runs in their first six games or something uh because they had veteran hitters against a zone that they knew and they just went bananas uh so it's hard evaluating prospects based on a lot of variables i think i've said before that i think triple a right now is operating a little more like double a and you've seen some guys come from AAA and absolutely spit the bit, unless they're named Wander Franco. Could you uh, explain spit the bit for our listeners? Stink. <laughs> uh, I think it's a horse metaphor. It's always great having Josh on because we get so many just words and phrases that are just so colorful and, and unique to you. It's, it's truly and a I've treat. All without swearing, which is not normal for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but any, in any case, I feel like spit the bit is a pretty common one uh, but anyway i don't i don't think so maybe uh, for boomers like yourself but not for me i have a body of a boomer <laughs> um scuffle anyway the there guys that come up in triple a kind of scuffle more than you would expect them to um given how much time they spend at triple a so yeah it's a weird year to try to uh, evaluate guys mm. I mean, it's not quite i think the the one i've talked to joe healy about was like i remember watching the college national team going okay these guys all stink, but they're facing Scott Kazmir. So maybe they don't stink as much as I think because <laughs> they're facing a guy who can throw a big league changeup. Yeah. Ben, do you have anything you want to pick up on that? I feel like there's a, a bunch of different directions. I, I popped into my head to go off of Josh's comments there, but I'll, I'll just throw it to you if you have anything to add on just anything he said there. Well, well, one guy who came up obviously in our top 100 conversation as far as trying to figure out where to put him is Jason Dominguez from the Yankees. What, what, I mean, he, he was, he's been especially difficult because I'm, I think, maybe the only person in the media who saw him through 2019, and that was 2019. <laughs> I was not, you know, kids who are 16, 17 can change a lot quickly. There was no 2020 season. The Yankees didn't bring him to their alternate site. They had no instructional league. And then he pops up and plays in the futures game this year. And it's, it's, I, I don't know. He, he's a difficult one. 
because for for a lot of reasons but what, what have you been hearing on on Dominguez Josh it's a hard year to evaluate him but the reviews that I've gotten have been okay they certainly haven't been you know the they certainly haven't matched the hype he's got but you're right Ben you know he didn't have a 2020 yeah, 2020 season they didn't have domestic instructs he was at their Dominican instructs uh, though I don't know if they played any games there. They just kind of you know, kicked off the cobwebs there. And scouts have seen, are concerned about the way the body's gone. Um, they're concerned about his you know, swing and miss versus breaking balls. They just haven't seen those loud tools that we've talked about, you know, ad nauseum with Jason Dominguez. So is he good? Yeah. Is he all world looking? Not so far. Um, he's, as you'll, you think he's been lapped in the system by Anthony Volpe, who I think we're going to talk about later, and Oswald Peraza as well, who have performed uh, really well this year. And in Oswald's case, um, the upper levels. Heck, Peraza was even, I believe, on the taxi squad for that Iowa game uh, that they did. So I guess they were confident enough in him if, if they had a situation that they could have played to put him in the big leagues for a spell. Um, and if you really want to argue about it, you might say Luis Gill is ahead of him. So he's, he's good, but the first look at him is not, you know, this monster. That this is another has. Kevin Maiton situation we're about to run into? It's not a Kevin Maiton situation. It's not that he's that. It's just he's, he's thick. He's not. Mm -hmm. I don't even necessarily mean just from a body standpoint. I, I mostly mean from a like a, a player who gets massively hyped trying no. to live up to that hype and not being able to. And I, and I don't know that. I, I recall an evaluator, yeah. you know, talking to, talking to him. He was like, you guys kept Kevin Maiton here. I would not have Kevin Maiton on my top 500. Uh, he's that bad. That's not the case with Jason. Like, he's yeah. a top 100 prospect. He's just not maybe. Okay. Yankees fans can collectively sigh and be relieved with that. Yes, and, and, I, and I, also I, he's currently riding a four-game hit streak, and in September has a 9.85 offs. So, so don't look now; he might be turning it around. September that six-game sample. <laughs> <laughs> what day is it in September? Um, but no, I, I do look forward to him making me eat crow next year, um, and him looking all world next year. Do you think he's still a top 100 prospect? I do. I do. Yeah. Okay. So let's. <laughs> Yeah, let's, yeah, yeah. That's why I think it's not properly frame the context of this was, was conversation. Python was, oh my God, bad. It was just this year, it doesn't look like the guy who was, you know, the names that have been thrown out on him are. And again, like Wit, I mean, Dominguez was the only guy in our prospect handbook that had plus or better tools across the board. So I think not, not living up to that, but still being a top 100 prospect is, is certainly fair. Yeah. Or not at least not showing those tools just yet, maybe. Yeah, it's it's a it's a weird year for him for sure. Um, I think he's he's good. He's just not you know the point one percent ceiling. And I do think I've talked to everybody, every, everybody I talk to about him. I say it's almost unfair the hype that we put on this this guy because that we talk about one percent ceilings. That's like a point zero 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 one percent ceiling. And that is. You know, we, the names that have been thrown out there, like other uh, at places like Mickey Mandel and Bo Jackson. And yeah, Mike not a, not in Baseball America. No, thank goodness. Uh, 
but they have been. Yohan Moncada is a name we've thrown out there as like a athletic, explosive, bulked up guy. He's shorter than Moncada. I was thinking Babe Ruth, really. Yeah, right. (laughs) Similar bodies. (laughs) Um, But in any case, yeah, he's good. Uh, This year has been mixed and I wouldn't worry too much about him, but I would, if I'm a Yankees fan, I would not worry too much about Jason so much as I would get excited about Volpe and Peraza. Yeah. I I think that's a a great transition there. Josh, we talked about a lot of guys that are difficult to, to rank difficult to place, maybe who have been disappointing, but I feel like Volpe would be near the top of the list. If I just looked at you guys and said, Hey, who, who has had the most impressive minor league seasons? Not necessarily, who is the best prospect, but but who has had the most impressive season? I can't imagine you would make a list where Volpe wasn't one of the first players mentioned. Yeah, you just, you just saw him live too, right, Josh? I did. I saw him for six games across two series. Um, he was outstanding. I mean, the only the only award on his card was his not yelling at the ump and getting ejected in the fifth inning game. Oh, yeah. What was that? I saw he, he posted the video. He hits a home run. And then as he's rounding home, gets ejected. Well, I don't quite... Hit the ball too hard. According to the people at the game who were closer to the field than I was, uh, he said something like, four balls to the ump as he crossed home plate, which I believe, and I am purely speculating here, is an extension of the argument Elijah Dunham had had his teammate with the ump previously in the game, which had also gotten him run. So I think he was just continuing to give it to the ump based on that. Uh, so they don't have robot umps there? No, they do not. Uh, <laughs> they do not have <laughs> robot umps there. Um, just, and, to, just to throw out Volpe's season here, he started in low A, moved up to high Hudson Valley. On, on the season between both leagues, he's hitting 293, 420, 602, with 24 home runs, 31 doubles, 30 stolen bases and 71 walks to 88 strikeouts, which I mean, after watching him in high school, those power numbers are eye popping. I remember just kind of the view of Volpe as a high school player was he was very solid, pretty much in, in every phase of the game, but I don't know that anyone put a plus tool on anything, any, any one specific tool, but scouts just praised uh, his professional approach to the game uh, how reliable he was as a defender. There are questions about whether or not he was going to stick at shortstop just because uh, people didn't know if he was quick enough or big enough for the position, but no one doubted his hands and just the reliability of of him making plays and balls he could get to. People liked his approach at the plate and bat-to-ball skills, but I know there are questions about uh, overall impact potential and what he's showing this year. I mean, it really seems like those tools are louder than the, what we saw in high school. Yeah, I mean, I, I do love the... He isn't big enough for shortstop. Other guys are too big for shortstop. There's like this, this, this ideal, Absolutely. unattainable body type for shortstop. Um, Look like Angleton Simmons. That's what it is. Yeah, that's it. Um, be that guy. But in any case, no, his, his season, no, they, they, in the offseason, they wanted to talk about increasing his average exit velocity. They praised his contact ability, but they wanted to see him hit the ball harder. And he very clearly worked during the off season to attain those goals. They, you know, he also wasn't at the alternate site. They didn't have domestic instructs. So anything that he did outside of whatever, like week of minor league spring training we had before everything got shut down was remote. And 
whatever he's done worked because he is hitting the living hell out of the baseball. Um, just watching the, the authority with which he hits the ball is stunning. The amount of contact he makes, he doesn't swing and miss very much. I think it's like at an 8.5% rate right now, which is really good for someone who's showed as much impact for anybody, but it's someone who's shown as much impact as he has. And as I said on our top 100 meeting, he commands an at-bat the way I haven't seen very many players do, especially at that age. Like he get it just noted multiple times where he get to two strikes and it's just like, all right, bring it. I'm still going to look for my pitch in my zone. And if it's not there, I'm going to foul it off or spit on it. And if I get it, then I'm going to rip it to either the gap or over the fence. And it was just like clockwork every single time he would get foul, either fouled to, to get where he wanted or hit it hard somewhere. And I, I noted one of the Greensboro relievers like, struck him out and it was like, oh my goodness, you found a spot where he couldn't make contact with it. That's really impressive. Just, it's, it's a super professional at bat and the tools are certainly louder than they were in high school right now. Like I'd be really excited about him if I'm uh, a Yankees fan. I wonder if this is just the the new, and I'm sure it's already happening on the team level, but just take these guys who have this innate feel for the barrel and try and add strength to them in a similar way where when you target pitchers, you're trying to get a guy who just has that innate feel for strike throwing and command, and you try to get their stuff uh, to another level. And it seems like the Yankees did exactly that with Volpe as a hitter, and it's paid off for them. Because it seems like teams have a pretty good idea of how to add strength to players at this point and those those other skills maybe it's a little bit more difficult to to teach someone how to make more contact that seems like a, it's a lot tougher than to just try and coach someone on how to get stronger what nutrition plan what weight, workout plan to get them on to, to add strength to their frame uh, so that's encouraging no, go ahead josh count the idea that he is a smaller guy and he doesn't have these huge limbs so he's going to have a bigger a, a, a relatively easier time making contact because there's not these long levers where he's going to have holes. It's Ben's uh, favorite type of hitter. He loves those short guys. Yeah. He's a, he's a, he's definitely that, but he's a, a spark plug type, you mm. know, just a really, really exciting, fun prospect. And I did enjoy watching him for six games. Outside what's of been, Volpe. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, what's been the jump then? Has it been the same kind of story with uh Oswald Peraza the shortstop with with the Yankees what's been I mean yeah I mean guy, it's been, this guy with like four home runs or like five home runs in like two or three years and now yeah, he it, has he's coming up on 14 15 home runs this year yeah I mean that whole team is kind of mashing but they talked about with him they were never concerned with how hard he was hitting the ball. It was that he was hitting it at infielders. They wanted just to add a little more loft to his swing to get him to hit it over the infielders. And that's what he's done. If he hits the ball in the air more often, it's going to go over the fence more often is the kind of the rationale that they had. And the swing changes that he made have worked out. You've seen kind of the, the, uh, the power increase as his ability to loft the ball has increased more. Outside of Yankees prospects, are there any other names that come to mind for players who have just been really impressive this season for either of you guys? We talked about Moreno. He's been really good for mm -hmm. what until he broke his thumb. Uh, let's see. 
in my system. Oh, you know, you know, we'll talk about a guy who was kind of under the radar for a system that is not very good, but has got mm-hmm. the big leagues. Romy Gonzalez with the White Sox. Mm-hmm. Um, Masher at Miami, who kind of trans kind of moved into the middle infield and is starting to hit for a lot of power. And he hit for power at double A, he hit for power at triple A, and now he's in the big leagues. So that was an an absolutely out of nowhere kind of uh, season that's been rewarded with a big league um, opportunity. Same with Jake Berger. I mean, one of the best stories in the minor leagues this year is Jake's, you know, coming back from two Achilles tears and a couple other injuries to make it to the big leagues at all and have a a moderate amount of success. So it was, I, I mean, lesser people would have packed it in after those couple of injuries and he just kept on grinding and got there. So kudos to him. What about you, Ben? I think George Valera has been impressive to me with the Indians um, outfielder, big international signing from their 2017 class. Really. I've always just loved his swing. It's, it's one of the prettiest, purest swings in, in the minors. It's kind of, I mean, it looks like Robinson Cano and Carlos Gonzalez had a baby. I mean, it's, it's just a really beautiful left-handed swing and he's got a good approach, understands the strike zone and he's, he's showing power now too. So he, he had some injuries and I think that set him back early in his career. He just wasn't playing a whole lot. And, and obviously 2020 was what it was, but to see him get to double a now as a 20 year old and in high a have almost as many walks as as strikeouts i think he's a guy who can hit he's he's gonna get on base at a high clip and and there's power in there too so he i don't i don't know how if maybe if he flies under the radar or not he's i think he's pretty famous but um just I, I'm, I'm really impressed with the way he's been able to jump out and and perform this year after just so much missed time his his first few years in the system. Yeah, he's been really impressive this year, as has his uh, Indian system mate, I guess teammate now there with both with Akron, uh, Bray and Rocchio, Brian Bray and Rocchio. Um, for a long time, I think the most famous thing about him, at least in BA circles, was his nickname was the Professor. And <laughs> this year, uh, and I, I especially applaud his performance this year because, you know, Nobody really got to do anything last year, but Rokio, if I remember correctly, got trapped in Venezuela and never got over. Like he didn't, once the, the Venezuelan guys around the league couldn't go home if they had gotten to minor league spring training, like Luis Matos spent a good amount of time um, in the Scottsdale courtyard waiting for restrictions to be lifted, but Rokio never got over here. So he never got in front of Indians coaches or player development people. And he's come out this year and performed really, really well at the upper levels and has, you know, jumped into our top 100 prospects. So it's a good year. A, for few, a few names that kind of jump out to me, and I know you guys have been impressed with to various degrees for their stuff and their performance, are a trio of pitchers, uh, high school pitchers from the 2018 draft class. And that's Grayson Rodriguez, Cole Wynn, and Matthew Liberatore. Obviously, we talked about Grayson Rodriguez a little bit already on this podcast, but I feel like both Win and Liberator have impressed for various reasons this year. Are, are those arms that you guys would say have been uh, among the better performers this year, or, or are there any other pitchers in general that stand out to you guys? I mean, I, I, those those guys have had 
pretty darn good years. JJ has documented. I uh, should make clear that's JJ Cooper, our boss. Yeah, I think everyone who listens pretty familiar with who JJ is, but yeah. Well, just making sure. But anyway. Which, which JJ do you mean? <laughs> uh, damn, JJ Abrams. <laughs> In any case. Not uh, JJ Bladay. There it is. There's another JJ. Um, Don't think of any more JJs. Move on. Well, I'm not trying to. Get <laughs> <laughs> his, his uptick in velocity has been really key. Yeah. How to start at the Futures game, but there was, you know, is it just because he's trying to throw hard because it's a one inning stint and he can just blow it out at the Futures game? But no, he was up to like 98 the other day. Mm-hmm. He is kind of insane. And that, you know, there are weirdly polarizing takes on velocity and how important it is, but it's really nice to have that kind of velocity when you need it. And it's really good to see him developing it. You know, Cole Wynn has come back from injury himself and has shoved this year as a 21 year old at double A. But the guy I want to talk about is one of Ben's favorites too. And that is Yuri Perez, the six foot eight inch, 18 year old right-hander who absolutely carved at low A as the literal youngest pitcher in the minor leagues. Like he's 18 years old and he's not going to turn 19 until like the second week of next year. He's got uh, it's a one seven ERA. He's made it to high a he's got like 95 strikeouts. And this is a guy, like I said, would be, you know, might've been a high school junior when the year started. He's really, really, really good. And the reviews on him in that league are pretty loud. I know Ben likes him too right yeah i mean i liked him when he was throwing like 82 to 85 <laughs> back, oh, in, get it. back in the dominican republic when he was like six five six six a hundred and nothing pounds <laughs> it's uh yeah he just keeps trending up i mean i guess literally <laughs> keeps growing taller um, but pretty pretty remarkable body control for somebody his his size and, and the stuff keeps going up would you would you take him over Mick Abel right now? Yes, because That's, that was no hesitation. Love it. I love Yuri Perez. I mean, and you like Mick Abel quite a bit too, right? Well, I don't have. I personally don't have a strong opinion on Mick. Okay, views have been really, really, really loud on Mick, but the results haven't been. It's it's a weird case of the results not matching the stuff, and to, he also has a shoulder impingement, I believe, right now, but. You know, Yuri Perez, you're right. He's he's six eight and has the body control of someone who's that, you know, ideal six three or whatever for a pitcher. The fact that that guy can throw strikes consistently with that body at that age is striking. I mean, he's got uh, uh, I didn't I didn't mean it that way, so <laughs> don't appreciate that. Um, is stunning. Uh hundred strikeouts in sixty-nine innings across two levels of a ball and the walk rate took a step down and it, it, it improved pretty significantly from low a to high a right like although it's a it's a small sample i guess but he it did get even in the better. First 13 innings he watched 21 and 56 at jupiter i don't know yeah i don't know i mean i, I don't know math at all so i can't tell I think you it was a three it was a 3.4 walk per nine and then a 2.1 walk per nine well now you've gotten away from those robo umps you can get you can get yeah. cornered again uh, in the Midwest League, or sorry, the High A Central. But the fact that, I mean, how, how many 18-year-olds could you plop directly into pro ball without any GCL time, without any short season time, and have them succeed like this? Probably not. Yeah, not many. Not a whole lot. 
Good calls. Fastball, good, good, really good changeup. Breaking ball needs to come, but scouts believe he has the aptitude and athleticism to do it. I mean, I, I love this guy. Yeah, they got him, Jose Salas, Ian Lewis, all in that 29 international class. That's looking like a pretty strong group. Their system is looking really strong. I mean, Edward Cabrera, Sixto Sanchez still counts. Uh, Jesus Sanchez just graduated. I'm sure I'm missing some guys right now. Jake Eater. Max Meyer. Max Meyer. And Jake Eater's reviews on Jake Eater before he got the surgery were excellent. You know, comps for, you know, mid-rotation starter from the left side. Um, Max Meyer has had, we talk about variables with Austin Martin. I think we brought it up in the meeting yesterday. Max Meyer's 2020 season was supposed to be the one in which he was stretched out as a starter at Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see the draft stock jump as a result. Apparently the Marlins saw enough after what the three or four starts to jump him all the way to third overall. And this year really is the one where they're stretching him out um, into a starter. And he's among the minor league ERA leaders. He might be the minor league ERA leader right now among qualifiers. It's been a really good year for him at double A to start his career. No hmm. Jupiter or Beloit for him. Yeah, there are there are a number of interesting arms. Uh, I think we're going to take a quick break. We've been going here for a little while. I don't mean to cut you guys off, but we'll have plenty more players to talk about and just minor league stuff in general after after the break. Uh, And we also have some questions to get to as well. So thank you guys for sticking with us. We'll be right back. And we're back. Thank you guys for sticking with us. Um, Pretty good conversations about specific players. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, maybe some more process uh, topics here, specifically with AAA. It was actually interesting that this kind of came up in our show, Doc, just to talk about this about how, how teams scout and evaluate players at the AAA level now and how that maybe has changed in the last five or 10 years or so. Um, me and Maddie, my girlfriend here in Norfolk, we actually went to, uh, to go watch Adley Rutschman and just, just see a game recently. And it's funny, she, she knows next, next to nothing about baseball. We kind of joke about it a lot in the Slack here, just me and Josh talking about it too. But she actually asked about like where the scouts were at the triple A game and kind of where they sat in general. And I, and I looked around and really didn't see many scouts that I could pinpoint Josh and Ben, you guys would know more pro guys specifically, but I kind of told her that teams really don't scout in person at the triple A level like they used to. Uh, and I'm kind of curious how, how you guys see how teams are evaluating triple A specifically and just how teams have allocated their in-person scouting resources and how, that has changed because of technology and the pros and cons of that. And just a general conversation about how teams are handling AAA, because it does seem like uh, there's less of an incentive to, to send scouts in person to, to games at that level. Let's start to you, Josh. Yeah. It's been kind of slim pickings more or less uh, at some of these AAA games. I mean, I go to Durham a fair amount. That's really it. There's no reason to go anywhere else. Uh, Charlotte comes in a lot. But you don't see a whole lot of scouts out here. I mean, the other day I was there and there was just one and I knew he was going to be there. And that was literally the only reason I went to the game was to talk to him for nine innings. But he was there to watch one guy and stick on him the whole series. There was a little bit of action close to the deadline. But other than that, there's been a lot of teams that have gone towards scouting AAA on video, which, you know, AAA video uh, is pretty good by and large. I will say that, you know, 
scouts generally say you cannot get the complete picture off of video. You don't get kind of the little tiny things you see that speak to makeup. You certainly don't get batting practice. You don't get infield outfield if they choose to take it. You don't get, you know, to watch routes and jumps outside of you know, whether or not the AAA camera people get it, you know, well. Uh, you know, you're still dealing with, you know, not Olympics level camera people at these levels. So it's, it's doable, but it's not a complete picture. That said, more and more clubs have chosen to do that and reallocate their resources to the lower levels, like the ACL and the FCL and low A, where the video is either non-existent or spotty. And let's be free, Frank, if you're going to a series at Durham this week, and or a, a couple weeks ago, and you, you see Adley Rutschman there. If you're one of that game, you know you're probably not trading for Adley Rutschman. Um, you're probably not getting a whole lot of the, the best prospects who are on AAA teams because they're known at this point. Maybe the best way to add to your system is to get those lower level guys who aren't you know, famous by our standards yet or are under the radar and have started to just kind of started to blossom outside of the, the view of maybe the national circles. So that's where you're, you're sending guys to blanket and really get to hone in on uh, over the course of the entire season. So you know, that is to say that, yeah, you're, what, you're, what Maddie saw was correct. There's fewer and fewer scouts at AAA games, and there are a variety of reasons for that. Matter of fact, one of the last guys I saw there was a scout for the KBO. So he's looking at one guy who might be available at the end of the year, might be a release candidate for, minor, for you know, MLB, but would be a great fit in KBO. Yeah, I was going to say there's a lot of uh, uh, scouts in J- from Japan <laughs> and from the Korea baseball organization there now where teams, ma- major league clubs, yeah, like Josh said, there, there will be scouts there, and, and in particular if it's the trade deadline coming up and there are certain guys that are coming up in discussions, all right, we'll, we'll send one of our – special assignment guys or our pro scouting director or, you know, whoever we, you know, we, we really trust in, in a, in a trade to, to make a, an evaluation for us. We want him going there to see these guys or, or those specific players in person, but the video is so much more ubiquitous now and the quality is better than it was 10 years ago, even five years ago. Yeah, I mean, being in person is is great. Like Josh said, you can see certain things and certain angles that you don't get on video, but maybe you go and you're not going to get any like challenging plays from the center fielder that you're there to see. Whereas on video, it's a lot easier to go up and pull up different plays and a much larger sample size of information. And you, and you have so much more data on those players that's so much more accessible from um you know exit velocities and and various spin rates and and pitch movements from from the tracking systems that are in place there it's just so much easier to get your your hands on that, that information as a as a club that you just did not have access to 10 years ago and it was much less prevalent even even five years ago so like josh was saying that teams teams are definitely dialing back from those live looks at scouting in person and in triple a and trying to send those guys to the lower levels where that that data the, the, the vi- there's less video on those players and 
the data is less less actionable. Uh, you know, if if you're trying to evaluate a, a 23, 24 year old in AAA, that that data is more more meaningful and, and holds more predictive value than for the 18 year old kid who's in one of the complex leagues. To that end, the Twins, you know, acquired Joe Ryan at the trade deadline. Uh, the Twins do not scout AAA anymore. Uh, and Joe Ryan pitched exclusively at AAA this year. The twin they don't scout at all? In person? No. They, they yeah, did, so that's a good example. Hey, they did video work. They did lots of video work. Right, right, but, but in person, I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. They didn't send anybody to Durham or on the road at Durham to see him. And this was not like some throw-in in, in no, a this trade. Was, this was one of two <laughs> big pieces in that – two big pieces in that deal? Yeah, two big pieces in that deal. They did send people to look at Austin Martin, but they did not send uh, anybody out to Durham to watch Joe Ryan and uh, scout him live, either at that park or even in his tune-ups at Cary for the Olympic team. I think I think especially for pitchers too that 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 makes even more sense. Hitters again, like you said, maybe you want to go see BP or, or go see some some in and out if to the team is going to take it out. <laughs> ideally um and and just try to increase the amount of information you can get from that but for a pitcher i mean what you know you, i guess you go watch his bullpen but a lot the overwhelming majority of, of what you're going to get is going to be there for you as long as there's a decent camera angle i mean if it's in you know left left center field or something then <laughs> that kind of sucks but you get good video you get all the data from from not just one start, but his, his entire season through, through, through the tracking systems. It's, mm-hmm. you have a lot of information to go off without having to go and, and see him in person. For sure. You can, you can sit here and say, I want to see every fastball Joe Ryan has thrown up in the zone. And you're going to see a lot of swings and misses. If you do that, you can go click on synergy or true media or whatever and go, all right, let's watch them all here in two minutes and grade them all out or whatever. Um, you might be missing some stuff, big demeanor on the mound, presence, poise, things like that. You also, if you're in person, you do get, and you have enough connections, you get a chance to dig on makeup with coaches and players like that, which that's the one thing that in talks with scouts is so important, but possibly underrated publicly is I, makeup. Yeah, we, I think we've talked about it on the pod before, but I think it's definitely underrated publicly how important it's that is. Not tangible, like it's so hard to describe. It, yeah. Anything that is hard to quantify like that, I feel like is going to be difficult to, to put the accurate value on just by definition. Makeup but, and athleticism. They're two vague-ish qualities, but they're really, really important. Mm-hmm. I, and I kind of, you guys have touched on a lot of really good points and a lot of reasons why teams are doing this. And I wanted to just throw this question out too, because I feel like it's a natural one to ask, just given how teams have operated in the past and maybe are continuing to do so, although this certainly probably varies team by team, but is there any concern with you guys that having fewer scouts at AAA means teams are, are just using this technology to cut down on costs in scouting, or do you think teams are simply re- reallocating the resources they have to maybe optimize what they're able to do as a scouting staff? I'm sure this there's no blanket answer for this because definitely teams operate in different ways, but just generally, would you be concerned that scouts are going to lose jobs because so many teams can 
I mean, you just talked about it. You can pull off a, a pretty major trade without having a scout in person, see a guy and feel confident. Are you guys at all concerned about that? Or do you think teams realize that no, the smarter route is probably just to put these people in positions where we don't have as much data or there is more projecting you have to do on a player that the data maybe isn't as cut and dry. How do you kind of see that squaring with what teams are doing? Well, it depends. Are they just cutting the scouts or are they reallocating them? If their total number of scouts employed changes year over to year. Yeah. And I guess Josh, you doing the our, uh, directory, you have a good idea of just the general change in scouting number for all these teams. Yeah. I mean, and I did a story to begin the year two about kind of the state of scouting and there are some teams that have dropped very precipitously. There were some, a lot of guys who have a lot of years in the game and lost their jobs. Um, and, you know, they weren't replaced. It wasn't like they were doing bad jobs. They just, teams were going away from scouting. I will say it was kind of interesting to see over the last couple of series, when I was watching, yeah, Volpe, I ran into two scouts who used to be with one club and now are with the Royals. And in doing so, the Royals added roughly 80 years of scouting experience in those two guys. And I cannot imagine the asset those guys are going to be to that scouting department. I mean, we saw, we talked earlier in this podcast about how well they developed certain guys. Mm -hmm. I think once they start making trades, guys like these are going to really, really help buttress their farm system and, and, and big league club and just make the product a lot better. I think it was, it was really heartening to see those two guys who have spent a lot of time in the game get picked up really quickly by the same club. And the same idea with a, I know there's another club who let a bunch of scouts go and three of them landed with the same club. And, you know, they're some of the best scouts I know. And I was like, okay, well, this team is going to get a lot better. And it did. So I, I'm, I'm saying you can, you can get, you can stop scouting AAA or at least de-emphasize it, but it would make sense not to let those guys go, just reallocate them at the lower levels and blanket it a little harder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I still want, even if you're evaluating players in AAA more through the, through the data and through video looks, I still want I still want the best scouts and, and the best evaluators using that video, assuming they are open to, to doing that. But I'd, I'd rather have the best scouts that I can get and have them watch, you know, videos of, of a player for, you know, spend his day watching, you know, three or four or five games of a player in one day rather than having him travel across the country and go see one game in a day and then wait until the next day and then go see another game. And, and I would, you know, again, if, if, if there are certain, you know, rule five picks were, you know, who, who might be on the radar to target over, over the off season or, or trades are, are coming up, um, you know, release can't, you know, there's certain situations where you do want to make sure you're, you're there in person to supplement the, the data and, and those video looks, but yeah, I, I still want the best evaluators in the organization. It's just a, it, it's just a matter of how you, how you deploy them. Yeah, no, that, that all makes sense. Uh, I wanted to also talk another, 
a little bit about grades, the 2080 scale. I don't know that we've ever talked about this specifically on the podcast, but I have uh, recent, I don't know how recent, but recently become a proponent of half grades on the 2080 scale. How, how do you guys feel about half grades? Yes or no uh, for that. I know various teams have different ways of doing it. There are even some teams that are even more precise beyond half grades. There are like, you could have like a 47.5 on something and I'm not sure if that just goes to specific tools or if that's in, in reference to like an OFP type number as an overall value for a player. But I do think there are plenty of teams who are getting more and more precise with the grades they use on players and tools. But, but what are your thoughts on the pros and cons of half grades? Uh, and, and do you guys like them generally? I'll, I'll go to you first, Ben, and then Josh. Yeah. So, I mean, it originally started as the two to eight scale where, five is average six is above average or plus seven well above average and then eight is top of the scale um and now it's it you know we, we use 20 to 80 so i i do like half grades in and as far as using a a 45 or a 55 to note something is not you know a 45 it's not quite average but it's it's not to the same level as a 40 i think you can make that distinction or or this pitch is is a tick above average or he's a, a slightly above average solid average runner i i think there's some distinction to be made there occasionally i think a 65 you know for grading out a, a pitch is is okay but generally I just say pick between a six or a seven. <laughs> mm. um, I, I think it's got to be an unusual case. And if and somebody's if somebody's putting a seventy five on something, then just just go with an eighty, man. Just <laughs> like put 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 a seven or put a seventy or put an eighty on it. You gotta you gotta pick a side at that point. And I think the proponents of and, and Josh will let you chime in here in a second, but proponents of like just half grades at forty five and fifty five is because it's a, it's a standard dip, or I don't know the specific terminology, but the distribution of where everyone falls in a 2080 scale, the vast majority of people are going to be clustered in the middle. So right. to differentiate, you need those 45s and 55s, whereas there aren't as many players or tools theoretically at the 70 or 80 range of the scale. So you wouldn't need that level of precision, I guess, to differentiate between players and between tools. But Josh, where, where do you stand on the half grade conversation? Use them. <laughs> I up and down the scale throughout. Yep. yep. I yep. mean, I, I agree with these teams that are going even more precise mm -hmm. than that. I mean, I'll ask a guy, hey, what do you think of this player? Oh, he's like a 63. All right. You're you're working <laughs> that, with... that's that's for an overall grade on a player, though. But it's also tools as well. Tools yeah. too. I I was very persuaded in going more and more with half grades and, and honestly as precise as you confidently can without just honestly like being kind of a joke by just throwing out something super precise without the confidence of that after reading the book super forecasting i think this is a book that many people throughout the industry have read but it is basically about like the art and science of prediction generally and for baseball and for scouting i think it's a immensely useful read and it's also super interesting but basically the book looks at these what they call super forecasters people who are just very good at predicting things and it's it's a huge range of predictions. It's not some super specific um, like area they're focused in. It's just they had people make all kinds of predictions for all kinds of things. 
And they found that the, the people who are best at this, the super forecasters tended to use very precise predictions. They weren't people who would say, oh, this is 50% likely or 60% likely, but they would say, like Josh was saying, like, oh, 63% chance of this happening. And I think it, it is worth noting that like you have to you have to have some reason for that level of precision. I don't think you're going to all of a sudden be better at predicting things or projecting players because, oh, you just threw out a 65 on this for whatever reason. But I think when you're forced to be as precise as possible, you have to kind of justify those selections and you have to really think through why you're being that precise. Um, and I just think that at least in the, that book, the, the evidence of the, the most accurate predictors in the game being as precise as possible makes me want to just be as precise as we can. And I don't think, I, I do see the the kind of point you made, Ben, about people maybe, maybe using like a, a 65 or a 75 as hedging, or maybe they're, they're afraid to go to that next grade up. But I also think that sometimes you, you can have a tool or a player that, that is truly in between. Um, and I think that it's not always hedging to use a half grade at the, uh, the extremes of the scale. That's how I would say it. But I, I can also see both arguments, but I, I tend to lean more towards like half grade as possible. Like I would love to use full half grades up and down the scale. I think when we talk, like if, if somebody's saying, oh, that guy has a 58 curveball, I, I just think that's false precision. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable in specifically doing that, but I also could see teams that just have a whole wealth of information and can dive into like the analytics and like the specific swing and miss rate or the specific like horizontal and vertical movement or, or even adding in like how this pitch with that movement profile pairs with your other pitches and your release point and all the, when you have all of those factors at your, at your fingertips and you also have really smart people who know how to break it down and you can more narrowly bucket all of those quantifiable numbers. I feel like it makes all the sense in the world to me that you could feel more com more confident putting that extra layer, but I wouldn't say I personally am really excited to go out and look at next year's draft class and put 57.5s <laughs> on tools. But I do, it makes sense to me that teams that have way more information and way more people to throw at this than I do would want to try and be, be more precise in that manner. And I, I, I think if you have the information and, and just the, the levers to make yourself feel confident in that, I, I, I can see why you would want to do that. I think it's, I think it's false confidence and, and fooling themselves even <laughs> okay. to think that they have, I mean, if you want to trick somebody, just put more decibel points in, in front of a number, like it, 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 it makes it, you'll, it'll make you sound smarter to, to do it. For sure. And that's something your, you don't have to worry about. Yeah. So it you're not doing it. it it's, yeah. I, I think it's, I, again, I think it's, it's some level of false precision when yeah. they're or trying to get too so so granular and think that you have enough certainty mm -hmm. in in the information that that you have to say this is a 59 slider and this is a 58 so mm -hmm. i mean that's to me again half, half grades in that range i'm fine with i, I think there's a difference between a 50 change up and a 55 change up and a, and a 60 change up mm -hmm. um and a 65 and, and, like <laughs> again like i have some leniency there but yeah. I, I think a lot of if, if it is if what you think is a 65 if it's better than plus it's probably a 70 i mean that that is one thing too where it's it's the 20 to 80 scale 
Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you should throw out a lot of 80s, but we should be able to use the entire scale. Now there are a lot more there are a lot more 80 runners and and probably you know 80 raw power at least at the major league level and you know maybe some in triple A, but there, there's a lot more of that than there are 80 hitters. And and I understand why you wouldn't project a guy to be an 80 hitter when he's still in the minor leagues. I understand that unless you're looking at uh, Vladimir hey, Vladdy, Jr. You did that, who, Ben, looking pretty good. Looking yeah, pretty good. That's a, that's a good blurb for the Prospect Handbook 2022 edition. So, uh, Or Wander Franco. I mean, it, it has to be something pretty pretty extreme. But again, it, it is the 2080 scale. We should mm-hmm. use the entire scale. And I think a lot of times when somebody wants to say, oh, this is a 65, it's probably you probably just go to a 70 on it and, and the eighties, again, you don't want to just throw those around liberally because that is, that is a, an extremely special tool, but we can probably use the full extent of the scale more, more than we do now. Yeah. Josh, back me up here, man. I was going to agree with everything you said, Carlos. Verbatim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, take that Ben. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, I think teams are working with so much more data that their, their precision is not false. They can have, they have, mathematical modelers and spin oh, well then a model i i think teams are i mean we, we've got five dinguses arguing in a room we we they've got <laughs> some of the smartest people on the planet at baseball wise and some of the best scouts and we've got us so maybe what we ju- do for ourselves should be different from what they do mm-hmm. but i will also note that te- some teams have gone away from the 2080 scale entirely and will grade things differently and some teams will go even past 2080 and say this is a 10 whatever and this is a 90 whatever so what are the what are the different ways the alternative scales yeah spin rate spin axis stuff like that for like just mathematical modeling i guess just i I don't know what the actual unit of measure that they spit out is but it will say this is this kind of curveball and this is better than that guy's curveball because of x y and z factors and the Mm -hmm. way are various systems graded so you're saying they'll for specific pitches or or pitch qualities they'll have a different scale but they're they're still using the 2080 scale to grade out tools and players or no some teams aren't doing that either some yeah do you know what alternative if they're just not using 2080 what they're using i don't that's a little proprietary but i did remember you know at one point in our handbook calls last year i was talking to one team and they're like okay well what is this guy in the 2080 well we don't really grade like that Okay, then I will ask someone else about this grade. But I think that's kind of starting, it's not huge, but it's starting to fall out a little bit. No, so, we can't have the 2080 scale fall out at, at all. Well, we like it. It's a way of life. 100%. <laughs> How about comps? Because I feel like comps, I, the, kind of the, the point you made there, Josh, about how teams have the ability to do things differently than we do kind of on the outside looking in. This is kind of how I think of comps as well. I personally don't like comps. And I know on the broadcast, the, the draft broadcast, they always ask me for like what comps I have for specific players. And, and I don't feel like I have been around long enough to just throw around comps. I mean, all the guys that I saw in 2018 are still making their way up the minor league ladder in many cases. Um, so I haven't really seen a full cycle of players even come to fruition once. So me throwing out comps seems disingenuous. So I don't tend to ever throw out 
comps of players, unless it's like, oh, this player in this draft reminds me of this player in the draft class a few years ago. But that's that's generally not the way readers and fans like to use comps. They want historic major league players that they can kind of get a an idea for what a player might be like when it's all said and done. And, and I tend to ask scouts who have been in the game for a long time, um, who, who've seen those players who they're comping when they were young, so they have a, a full grasp of it um, and, and can throw out more accurate comps that aren't just like famous names that get thrown out all of the time. That's how I tend to use them. And I also think comps in general, specifically if you're, you're doing like a, a total player comp rather than like, Oh, this swing is similar to this, or this breaking ball is similar to this, or this power reminds me of this player's power. I think they can be a little bit um, misleading uh, whether that's unfair to the younger player or unfair to the older player, or honestly just unfair to a reader who maybe doesn't know the details of a player or why a comp was used uh, that the scout might be aware of. I think they can be misleading, but I do think it's, it's hard to deny what comps are attempting to do. Um, so that's kind of how I feel about them. Josh, Josh, how do you feel about comps generally? I despise them. <laughs> I loathe them. I should have known you'd have a really strong I take on one way or the other. Comps. Because I think it puts, I think what we're looking for, what, what fans are looking for and what maybe teams do internally is different. It's, you know, 90% of the, not 90%, a good chunk of questions in various chats are, who does X player remind you of? And unless you say some all world player, they're going to be disappointed. Yeah, if, I, I do whatever, think the average MLB comp is very underrated by, by just people generally. For whatever reason, when I've talked about this with people, the name that comes back most times, like if I said such and such player was going to be Mark Loretta, you know, fans would be disappointed and think that guy stinks. They want I think to Lyle him. Overbay was thrown out yeah, the other day, like 14 year major leaguer. Yeah, yeah, people yeah. People would not and, be happy about that. Yeah. And if, if you don't say that such and such player is going to be Willie Mays or Justin Verlander or whoever, fans get disappointed. It's like there, it's either a star or bust sometimes and that's just really disappointing and wants me and makes me want to you know stay away from comps i was on a so, podcast i was about to say does that make you not like comps in general or you don't like how just comps are used because i feel like those are two I different arguments as individuals yeah they're there's they're they're one of one unless you're wander franco in which case there's several wander francos it's <laughs> it's a you know what you know a comp is short for comparison well, yeah, a comparable player. It's a comp, not a clone. I mean, I didn't know I was on the podcast with a comp police here. Jeez. <laughs> I hate oh I, there was a podcast I was on earlier this year where someone said, can you give me a comp for this guy? And I said, stop the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's so no, you good. Did it. <laughs> I'm not doing that. Did they actually stop? Yeah, we did. I just out. left. I'll, I'll do anything, but I won't do that. You know? <laughs> All right, so who, what's your comp for Bobby Wood Jr.? Oh, my God. Bobby Wood Sr. You know? <laughs> so, so, again, it's, it's a comp, not a clone. You need to it, – it's fine. I mean, yeah, like on the, on the draft broadcast, I know they like to just throw out a comp for every player, and, and I don't force a comp on every player, but I, I think, yeah, it, as long as you contextualize – what you're comping a player for it's it's not only fine i think it can be helpful it's this player's swing 
reminds me of this player's swing. I really like or those this... a lot more than just overall comps. I love the specific like traits or swings or this player runs like or defends like. I like those a lot more. I feel like they tell you a much more specific story than an overall comp does. Or this player reminds me of this guy at the same age, except that he's a little bit taller. The, the player right now is... Uh, a better runner and, and a better defender, but that's, you know, tell me why they're comparable. Tell me why they're similar, but also tell me where the distinctions are. And I think even, you know, when we have conversations with scouts talking to them about players, it's, it's important to just, just to have some, you know, history on, on how they, like there's, there's a scout I talked to who will say, you know, yeah, this guy could be like a, a Raphael for Cal type player. Well, when, but I know when he says that, he doesn't mean he's going to be a, you know, a perennial, like an all star big leaguer. He just means, oh, this is like a smaller, speedy, switch hitting, you know, shortstop type guy, right? He doesn't mean necessarily it's going to be that kind of impact. So, yeah, you do have to have that, that context for it. But I'm not, I'm not, uh, don't sign me up for the comp police with you guys. I'm not oh, on board with that. Ugh. I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle of you guys there. I don't know yeah, if I'm at fully Josh's category. <laughs> no, no, no. If you want to say he's a smaller, speedy shortstop type player, say he's a smaller, speedy shortstop player. Why not? Why invoke Raphael for Cal? <laughs> Just tell me what he is, not what some other guy was. I, I think it, I think you can help paint a picture for people of of the type of player a prospect is who they've never seen by by using comps again not mm -hmm. saying use it in every situation and when you do be be clear and add context to say yeah. what it, what specifically is is similar and what is and and why it's it's not again it's a comp not a clone. Mm -hmm say what's similar and say what's say how it's it's different as well yeah i like that i can see both i can see both sides josh i'm not entirely uh against your opinion i don't think i would go as strongly but i, I think a lot of ben's points are are very fair and accurate as well i think everyone who's doing comps could at least on the public facing side could do do well by just adding a lot of context and being very specific in how we employ them generally um, josh josh is about to leave the podcast well, you'll, you'll never make it in the world of hot takery if you're gonna have new <laughs> even-handedness oh man c-span <laughs> uh i think we're gonna move into listener questions now josh is about to boycott the podcast so I don't, I don't think we can keep him on too long um and again thank you to everyone who sent along questions uh, in the future, you can do that at Future Pro Pod on Twitter. You can do that uh, via my Twitter at Carlos A. Colazzo. You can do that uh, with Ben's at Ben Badler and his Instagram, which is Ben.Badler. Is that accurate, Ben? I feel like I yeah, or person. you can just send it to at Comp Police BA. Yeah, and, that'll, uh, that'll get you to Josh. It'll get you to Josh's inbox. The, uh, <laughs> you actually, I think, I think after this podcast, if you guys just like have a prospect just throw it to josh and ask <laughs> who his comp is for this prospect let's see let's see how many we can get see if josh will cancel his twitter account I do like every so often when i get from scouts is like it's, it's like a guy from like 70 years ago if you talk to a real like yeah this guy reminds me of old uh Hospital. You can, <laughs> and and you can never use that either because everybody's gonna know right. like oh like 
this guy was like teammates with him back in like the 60s or so like right 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 if i yeah if i said oh it's johnny mize all over again well okay i just narrow it down <laughs> yeah send all of your comp questions to at jay norris 427 on twitter little, you know um, my twitter settings that virtually everyone's muted so oh, God dang I'm gonna That's get a, a cop uh, police hat and a big megaphone for our next podcast with a with one of those of sirens too. to Blair. <laughs> hashtag <laughs> cop police stripper cop police. <laughs> yeah, that's what we need. But uh, let's jump jump into the questions. Uh, Bowman Bowser on Instagram brings up Anthony Volpe, who we've talked about a lot on this pod. He says Volpe has exceeded expectations this year. Uh, is he next year's Bobby Witt Jr.? No. Because Bobby Witt Jr. didn't play a game at low A and high A, and, and Anthony Volpe's done that. So, so you don't like that comp? Nope. <laughs> nope. I, well, it's also to, uh, to point out just again how remarkable Bobby Witt, Sen- Bobby Witt Jr.'s year is. Bobby Witt Sr., good too. But Bobby Witt Jr.'s year is uh, that he didn't have a traditional development path. Mm-hmm. Bobby, or Bobby, Anthony Volpe. Did have some weird stuff like his his first year out of the draft he did have mono he didn't perform super well at pulaski so there were some mitigating factors there which is you know why i had him where i did in his initial handbook ranking mm-hmm. but i i expect anthony volpe to have a good year next year at double a AA or triple a or wherever he winds up but bobby witt has been sublime yeah the same draft class too yeah uh, next question is from Dungeon Master on Twitter. Asks, can you talk about Tyler Soderstrom's bat, ultimate position, and ETA? Seems multiple injuries limited his playing time, but good results when he was out there. Uh, ben, I think you touched on this a little about a little bit earlier. I think I, I tend to agree with what your thoughts are, but yeah, what, what do you think about just his his bat in general, his position in ETA? Because I do think the ultimate position and the ETA question are, are pretty closely linked. Uh, what's not to like about his bat? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, Carlos, you've been on him for for a long time. He went 26 overall, and I remember you thinking that was a just a steal to get mm-hmm. a guy like that at the back of the first round for the A's. And yeah, the, the reviews last year that that Mark was getting on him doing A's calls from the alternate side and and from instructional league, I was like, are we sure it's this? He's this good? Like this? Mm-hmm. This can't be can't be right but no he was right on and yeah. he he looks he looks outstanding i mean real really like robert hassel and 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 zach veen with you know the padres and, and rockies outfielders from that draft class but i i put soderstrom right up there offensively and oh he might be able to catch but again maybe his bat moves so fast kind of like a, a will myers where it's like mm-hmm. Let's just put him at you know third base or, or right field and, and let this guy go out and hit the middle of our lineup and, yeah. and be there at I don't know maybe 21 years old. I, obviously everything delayed last year because of the the pandemic, so you know maybe it takes a little longer than that just to get there. But I mean this guy 21, 22, I expect him to be in the big leagues and, and be an impact hitter pretty quickly. Yeah, I think this was brought up in, in the meeting at some point. Someone just brought up the question of, oh, what if he's not a catcher? And basically the response from, from most of people in the meeting was like, who, who cares? Like, we feel really good about his bat, that wherever he plays, he's going to be a good hitter. And you could even make the argument that, and again, this is the reason why it happens, that it would be better for him to move off the position because he avoids the wear and tear. You get the bat in the lineup um, more frequently. So, yeah, I don't I don't have any concerns. I think it would be cool to see him catch, um, but I don't – I don't think it's going to hurt his value too much if he doesn't, because I, I do really believe in the bat that much. 
Um, Jeff Bosch on Twitter asks, outside of Asa Lacey and any recent graduates, which Royals pitcher do you think has a chance to pop into an upper rotation guy? Uh, and I'll let you two both address just Asa Lacey in general, because I do think he has uh, probably not answered some questions so far this year. I'm curious if you still think he's an upper rotation type and just any other pitchers from that system that you think could uh, could be an upper rotation or top of the rotation type. Josh, I'll throw this one to you. Yeah, I mean, I haven't spoken to a whole lot of people about Asa Lacey because that league is a little bit of a hole in my coverage. Uh, but I'll answer the second part of the question. Alec Marsh was a name that was really hot uh, at the beginning of the year. I think he got hurt. But he's got some really nice, really, really good stuff. And the results were really good, too, uh, initially. I don't like to put much weight in my own looks, but I've seen him as an amateur and he was outstanding. Um, granted, it was against children uh, who were playing for the lower level Rangers affiliates. At the time, it was an ASU scrimmage against lower level Rangers guys and like instructs or extended or whatever it was. And it was like, who is this guy? And do I have to account for the fact that he's 21 playing against 17 year olds? But the, the stuff was really loud. And in pro ball, he's done pretty well, too. So that would be my pick. Nice. Uh, ben, do you want to chime in or should we go on to the next one? Uh, he's, he's a long ways away, but Frank Mazzucato is an interesting guy. Oh, that's I'm your not, guy. You're the Frank Mazzucato guy. Hey, top I'm 10 not, pick. I'm not saying I would have taken him with a top 10 pick, but I do like Frank Mazzucato quite a bit. Um, outstanding curveball. I think he has the stuff to miss a ton of bats. It's not a big, big fastball. It's, you know, a lot of 88, 91, touch of 93, but a lot of positive projection indicators there for him between the very easy delivery, fluid arm action, quick arm speed, athletic. Um, you know, there's a perfect world scenario. Hold on, Josh, you might want to cover your ears for this, but like there's a perfect world scenario where you could turn into like a Max Freed type of pitcher with you know, a left-handed pitcher, if he grows into some more velocity and goes from, you know, 88, 91, touching 93 to a guy who's, you know, 90, 94, touching 96, uh, or, you know, following the path of like a Blake Walston type pitcher with, with the D-backs, somebody who, um, you know, another, you know, pretty, pretty advanced left-handed pitcher for his age. I mean, and he's also young for, for this draft class. So, there's some there's some scenarios where if, if those projection indicators, uh, you know, are are accurate and, and the projection comes on and and the fastball velocity upticks, where uh, I think he could I think he could be a really really good starter at the major league level, and we can include Asa Lacy in that too, because I mean, it doesn't it doesn't sound like things are pointing the right way for for uh, for Asa Lacy this year, so he's definitely a guy who. Um, I think needs to need to turn things back around next year. All right, Josh, you are safe to listen now. Ben is done with his comp. But uh, our next question comes from Stephen Hardesty, who asks, of the 2021 top draft prospects, who have been the most impressive in their professional debuts? I think we talked about this a little bit on last episode. I don't know that it was necessarily um, specifically regarding the, the top draft prospects. Um, but the the ones that come to mind for me, immediately uh two high school shortstops and then two college outfielders and that's khalil watson um with the marlins brady house with the nationals 
and then Colton Kowser with the Orioles and Sal Frelick with the who's Sal? Oh, the Brewers. So those guys have all really performed with the bat um, right out of the gate. Um, I think both Khalil and Brady have been hitting for impact. Colton Kowser has continued to show uh, his ability to control the strike zone and, and just show that impressive hit tool. And Sal Frelick, kind of the same deal. He's just hit everything. And again, with all these guys, it's it's tough to go too overboard because it is a small sample and it is lower level. But um, you have to be, I guess, at least encouraged with how they've taken to pro ball. Those, I think, are the four obvious top guys. Unless I'm missing one, I, I think Marcelo Meyer has been pretty good too. I was gonna, th- yeah, I was gonna say Marcelo Meyer yeah. in that group too. He is a little bit of a larger sample size than mm-hmm. Watson and, and House in the complex league in Florida. Um, yeah, but... so that's, I mean that's pretty good for. I mean most of the top prominent bats, and I guess Henry Davis has been dealing with an injury, um, so it's tough to take too much from from what he's done. So a lot of the bats at the top have have started off how you would want them to. Uh, any other guys that I didn't mention uh, that you guys want to want to touch on? Josh, you have anyone? No, I mean Freelich did really well at, at Low A Carolina, but like I mentioned with that league, they are running out of arms, mm-hmm. below levels. I would hope a college pedigreed outfielder who was taken that high could destroy that league. Hmm. Maybe somewhere in a more appropriate setting at High A Wisconsin. All right. Uh, Tim Hugh on Twitter asks, what's the industry term for his swing isn't ideal, but our coaches should be able to fix it. Uh, Brendan Davis and Owen Casey have markedly upgraded their prep swings as pros. Um, I'll just throw this one to you guys. Generally. I, I don't know that there's like a specific term for this. Um, I'm sure it just depends on the player and what specifically is the issue we're talking about. Like, is it a mechanical flaw? Is it a bat suite issue? Is it like an inability to elevate the ball? Um, but, but do you guys have any thoughts on this generally? Um, I'd say he has the ingredients to do certain things with some alterations. I don't know mm-hmm. if there's a catch-all. Like, yeah, ball of clay might be the term. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Ben, do you have any thoughts on this one? Uh, wishful thinking could apply. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it just it depends on on the hitter. Like Bo mm-hmm. Bichette in in high school, one of the criticisms of him was he just had a complicated swing. There was a lot going on with it. But I mean, really, the, there's the biggest difference between now and then in his swing. I, I think is just where he set up his hands, um, you know, a much different hand set up back then. I mean, it's still a very dynamic flowing type swing. He, he obviously shortens up with, with two strikes with the leg kick that he does, but um, you know, that's a smaller adjustment. Whereas something, you know, if, if a guy has a real steep uphill swing path, it's, it's cutting in and out of the zone quickly i it it can change um you know that certainly the younger you're looking at a hitter the more probably malleability there is to be able to change his swing whereas a college hitter you can you know you can make changes you know jaron duran we've talked about has, has made changes to his swing as as a college hitter um but though you know the older you are, the more ingrained your swing probably is into who you are. And and there are guys who can make, you know, bigger swing overhauls, but I, I prefer to have guys where they already come with a good swing 
and good feel for hitting and you're you're making more you know tweaks at the margins here and there to them um especially if a guy you know if a guy has good hand-eye coordination you might be able to make some bigger you know add some bigger movements to their swing like you know we were talking about gabriel moreno that's that's a good example somebody who has outstanding hand-eye coordination and and also very good athlete too who made a lot of contact at the very lowest levels of of the minor leagues but just was not driving the ball with with any impact and the blue jays did a great job of you know just getting some more dynamic and athletic movements into his swing and and you're seeing you know combination of that and just him getting stronger as he gets you know into his early 20 starting to drive the ball with more impact not just in, in batting practice but but in games too yeah i think another swing kind of along these same lines that, that comes to mind for me is just garrett mitchell I mean, he's had swing questions going back to his high school days. Um, there was the concern that he was not going to be able to elevate the ball enough to tap into his raw power. Uh, and so far this year, his ground ball rate is above 60%. And I think that's near the top of both the leagues that he's been in. Um, so, so far, he, he's yet to answer those questions. And I think even in college, it was a, a question of, was he hitting like this because he's incapable of pulling and, and launching the ball and getting the ball into the air or because UCLA used a very specific approach where they wanted him to kind of put the ball on the ground, move runners over, use his speed. Um, so he's another guy that I feel like falls into this category of there are major questions about the swing and what he's able to do with his swing in pro ball. And how are you able to tweak that or adjust that uh, to maximize his potential? And, and that question is, is still to be answered with him. Another guy that comes to mind uh, is Logan Wyatt with the Giants. Um, there were questions about his passivity at the plate and how that would translate in pro ball and, you know, seeing him personally and talking to their people about him. Uh, the lack of impact at the plate has been concerning. Um, he simply does not hit the ball very hard. He gets himself into deep counts. He almost looks like he's more, he would much prefer to take a walk than get a hit of any kind. And as a result, he's, hitting weak opposite field contact and certainly not hitting the ball with any authority. Yeah. So I, I think there's just no real blanket term for this. Probably. I think all these guys have specific um, differences in their swings. And I don't know that there's like a specific term for this unless I'm just misreading the question, but uh, thank you for that, Tim. Uh, Roger Munter on Twitter asks, what's your take on Marco Luciano's high a struggles? Josh, I'll throw this one to you. I have no concern about it at all whatsoever. Uh, no. He's like 20 years old in high A in a league that is a little older than he is. It's not going to be, uh, uh, it's not going to be always, you know, this super linear clean path to the big leagues. He might be pressing a little bit from what I hear, but I'm not worried about him the same way I'm not worried about Orelvis Martinez struggling that in that league a little bit or any other guys who may be playing a little bit above their station struggling initially. How about you, Ben? I don't want to agree with Josh, but I, I guess I, I but guess you can I will. Comp your answer to mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it, it, look, it's, I mean, it's not great, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I think it's just a, a very young, like I said, like Josh said, teenager about to turn 20 years old, 
getting promoted and and just you know having some struggles with some um pitch selection and and swing and miss at the end of the season um not not a not a huge concern i, I do think it's you know it's it's becoming more evident that he's he's not going to stick at at shortstop um th- which was always sort of a wishful thinking i guess i mean it, you know you never know it at 16 for based on what he was showing at that time there are guys who surprise and and are able to stick at shortstop that you wouldn't have expected but i think the expectation was always that he most likely would end up at third base or potentially an outfield corner if, if something really went wrong so he i, I think there's going to be a you know a position change at, at some point but um yeah in, impact power i really like his his swing and he's just seen a, a speed of the game that's that's a little bit faster than what he's uh what he's ready for right now but it's it not a long-term concern for me i, th- I think he's still a guy who's gonna be able to uh, potentially hit in the middle of the lineup down the road uh Ephraim dragovich on twitter asks von grissom having a great year thoughts uh he is having a great year so currently grissom he's on a bit of a hot streak uh was moved up to high a rome and on the year between Rome and Augusta, he's hitting 324, 11, 473. Um, Vaughn was one of the players we, we tabbed as like a breakout candidate entering the year. Uh, so I'm glad to know that he's just performed well. Uh, I know dating back to his high school days, teams really liked Grissom's just bat to ball ability, his, his ability to manage at and at bat. And the question was, <clears throat> excuse me, the question was, was he going to be able to elevate the ball uh, because of the bat path that he had, he put the ball on the ground a lot, uh, didn't get it into the air. And I think we are seeing him start to elevate a little bit. I think he probably has more strength and power in the tank still than kind of the game output that he's shown. Uh, but I think the, the Braves have to feel pretty good about what he's done offensively while dealing with a few knickknack injuries here and there. Um, I think the biggest question with him is, is defensively, where is he going to kind of settle into a role. Is he going to be a guy who just constantly moves around and fills holes depending on what you need? I, I think that's probably the type of defender I see at this point. Um, but he has played a, a fine shortstop. I think probably would be stretched there as an everyday player at the higher levels. Um, but yeah, he's had a really good season and hopefully he'll continue tapping into that power that he's starting to flash a little bit this year. Um, and unless you guys have any thoughts on that, uh, we can go to the next one. Uh, Tim Rader on Twitter um, asks if Ben can wax poetic on the potential signing timeline of Brando Maia and Felnine Celestine. Uh, I'm confused when they can actually sign. Thanks, guys. Uh, ben, do you have any clarity on the timelines for both those guys? And feel free to correct my pronunciation if I butchered their names. They're international prospects in the 2022 class, which really means they're going to be eligible to sign most likely at some time in 2023. So the upcoming signing class is what's, well, you know, what everybody in the Latin American baseball community calls the 2021 signing class because they were going to sign on July 2nd, 2021. But MLB pushed back the signing date starting last year from July 2nd to January 15th. So the class that just signed 
in January, you know, Christian Hernandez, Carlos Coleman, Ares, um, all those players, they signed in January, you know, January, 2021, but technically that was the 2020 signing class. So this upcoming class will be the 2021 signing class that'll sign in January 15th, 2022. And these players are in the 2022 signing class that, you know, this, the, that the upcoming signing period will go from January 15th through uh, 2022 through December 15th, 2022. Uh, And presumably this class that they're in 2022 class will be eligible to sign at some point in 2023, but obviously there's a new collective bargaining agreement that needs to be negotiated um, at the end of this year. So the exact date when they're going to be signed uh, or eligible to be signed is yet to be determined. And it's very possible they could be uh, an international draft at that point. So uh, most likely at some point early 2023, but we don't know yet until the new CBA is hammered out. There you go. A very detailed answer for a very convoluted uh, international system we've had to deal with the last two years. I guess it's not super convoluted, but just a little bit confusing. Uh, I think those are all the questions we had time for today. Uh, thank you guys again for sending all of those in. Uh, and remember remember to send your comp questions to at jnorris427 on Twitter. Um, I'm going to let you guys plug a little bit of what you have coming up or what you want listeners to be on the lookout for uh, as we sign off here. Josh, I'll go to you first. Do you have anything you want listeners to be aware of or anything you're working on or anything they should be looking out for? Uh, starting with the breakdown of comps for every top 100 player. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We love that. Yeah. But the players are only before 1900. So <laughs> it's going to be a weird list. Yeah. Uh, in any case, we will have an updated top 100 come Monday. We've sent out our preliminary list to various pro scouting directors as we've been podcasting, quite frankly. Um, that's coming up. We've got our league top 10, top 20s coming out soon ish. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be other stuff in there i'm doing something right now on if we, we did at the beginning of the year youngest players by league and i want to see how they did uh at their various levels this year and shocker a lot of them did really good just tattoo age and context on the small of your back because it <laughs> really means something um i think that's all for me what about you ben yeah we got the top 100 that we're working on right now i'm going to update some of our our draft stuff. And then I'm just watching Elijah green hit bomb after bomb. He right only hits some runs exclusively. I think as of, as of the time we're recording this, I think he's they're play The USA 18U national team is playing against Canada. I believe he is four for, four for six, 16, four for 16 with four home runs. Yeah. <laughs> Including one that I believe went 456 feet. Pretty good. ISO right there. At, he's working at the with. trap. Yeah. But a two fifty average. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the uh, the the tough debate up top continues. He's been really impressive. So, and so is Tremar. So is Tremar, yeah, though. Absolutely. Uh, for me, um, again, kind of what Ben alluded to, more draft updates coming. Um, I think I'd, I just would also point to the recent recruiting rankings that went up from our college team, Teddy Cahill, spearheading those. They're on our site now. If you guys want to check those out, I actually haven't read the whole thing. So as soon as we get off this, I'm probably going to uh, 
skim through the rest of that, make sure I'm caught up. So I would point to that. Um, just, yeah, rankings updates really across the board for us. The league top 20s are on the horizon. Um, and before you know it, we're going to be in book season, which seems crazy working on the prospect handbook for next year. Although uh, for you guys listening, it's not probably at the forefront of your minds. Um, for us, it's going to be coming up shortly. Um, but until then, we're looking forward to just coming at you regularly uh, on this podcast. It's been fun. Josh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for uh, your your diverse um, wordplay on the podcast and, and just your takes in general. We always have fun with you on. Uh, for Josh, for Ben, and for myself, uh, we'll see you next time, everyone. Thanks for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.